If you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23 this morning. Which finishes a passage of Scripture that encourages us to be courageously content with Jesus Christ. To help orient you once again to this book and this passage, the book of Colossians was written by one of Jesus' apostles, Paul, to a fledgling church that had begun gathering to worship Christ in the small town of Colossae that is located in modern-day central Turkey. And Paul writes this letter because he's concerned about this church in Colossae. He's concerned about it for two primary reasons. First, as he writes in chapter 1, verse 4, we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. In other words, they'd become believers in Jesus Christ. And Paul did not want them to remain spiritual infants. Having entrusted their life to Jesus, he wanted to see them grow and mature and become more like Christ. That's why he writes uh, in chapter 2, verses 6-7, through that just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. So Paul writes this letter primarily for their spiritual growth and maturity in Christ. But he also writes this letter for spiritual protection. Because certain people had crept into the Colossian church who were working actively against that goal of spiritual maturity and were seeking to lure the believers there in that assembly away from a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. So Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Satan wanted through unbiblical ideas to kidnap the minds and hearts of those Colossian believers and carry them away from devotion and sincerity and discipleship under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And since the most effective assault comes from the inside, Satan used self-professing Christians to inject these ideas into the church. That was what was happening in the Colossian church. Individuals who claimed to be followers of Jesus had snuck into the church and were telling other believers to follow Jesus plus all these other ideas and philosophies. And so Paul writes this letter to urge them and us to stand firm in our commitment and pursuit of Christ above all. As he tells us in verse 10 of this chapter, we are complete in Him. We're filled in Him. We are lacking nothing in Christ. Therefore, we must be courageously content in Jesus. That's Paul's message from verse 16 of chapter 2 on into the end of the chapter. As these false ideas come alongside us in life, and they will, and they say, hey, you've got Christ, that's good, but you also need this, or you also need that. We need to hold fast to Jesus Christ alone. First, we need to cling to Christ, not legalism. That's what we saw last week in verses 16 through 17. Paul wrote there, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, one of the greatest dangers to our devotion to Jesus, above all, is the allure of legalism. It's the allure of this idea that believers need to observe either obsolete or extra-biblical requirements, restrictions, and ceremonies to be mature and to grow spiritually. That's a lie. 
And especially so when it comes to Old Testament ceremonial laws. We've already seen earlier in this chapter of chapter 2 that these have been nailed to the cross. According to verse 15, where Christ has died, having both satisfied the righteous requirements of the law as well as what theologians call the retributive. Both its positive demands, do this and live, Jesus fulfilled, as well as the negative, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Christ fulfilled all of that in our place as the perfect substitute, as the perfect Lamb. He has demonstrated authority over the law and fulfillment of it. Thus making the first covenant with its legal demands obsolete for those of us who are in Christ, as Hebrews 8 verse 13 says. Therefore, Paul's first admonition to the Colossians was cling to Christ, not legalism. Well, this morning, Paul's got two more messages for us. We're going to see that in verses 18 uh, through 23. We see in verses 18 through 19 that we must cling to Christ, not mysticism. And then finally, in verses 20 through 23, we must cling to Christ and not aestheticism. And we'll see what each one of those terms mean in a moment. But, But because we are complete in Christ, we must be courageously content and we must cling to Him. Not legalism, not mysticism, not aestheticism. We must hold fast to Christ above all. So with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 on to the end of the chapter. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings these indeed these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh this is the word of god which we must never forget For by it, God has given us life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this passage of Scripture. Father, we thank You that You not only in Your Word tell us this is the way, walk in it, but You also in Your Word set up warning signs so that we might examine ourselves, so that we might examine our influences and walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We pray 
pray, Father, that Your Word would have free course in our hearts and minds. Pray that Your Spirit might work powerfully during this time. That You might preserve Your sons and daughters who have gathered here today. That You might preserve all of us from the dangers of legalism from the deceptions of mysticism, from the futility of aestheticism, and rather that You might capture our hearts and minds with a love and a devotion to Jesus Christ above all. May He be who is the head, head over us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Paul warns us that we must cling to Christ and not legalism, not rules and regulations, but rather Christ for spiritual maturity and growth, he then teaches us that we must cling to Christ and not mysticism. That's in verses 18 through 19. You say, well, pastor, what's mysticism? This is the simplest definition I could give you this morning. It would be this, devotion to a higher or deeper spiritual experience. That's mysticism. It is being devoted, focused, concerned, obsessed. You can use whatever word you want there. Devotion to a deeper or higher spiritual experience. This is what the Colossian heretics were claiming. Hey, I had this personal experience that I can't explain, but oh, it was God. And if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to walk, uh, if you want to take your walk with God to the next level, and if you want to go deeper and you want to go higher then you need to have this experience too. So Paul begins verse 18 by saying, let no one disqualify you. And this builds on the word picture that was introduced back in verse 16 of people that were trying to judge other believers on extra biblical matters. Just like a judge in a sporting event blows a whistle to warn players they're about to be disqualified and miss out on the prize if they don't change what they're doing, these false teachers were coming along with messages saying to these believers, you're going to miss out on the prize too if you don't change what you're doing. You say, well, what prize is that? It's the prize of spiritual freedom. It was the prize of spiritual fulfillment. It was the prize of spiritual joy and of assurance of being accepted and righteous before God. These false teachers were saying, freedom and fulfillment are not found in drawing near to Christ alone. No, spiritual freedom and fulfillment are found by participating in these mystical experiences. And I know you've met people like this where they'll say things to you like this. Oh, I thought I was living the Christian life until. Right? I thought I was living the Christian life until I began speaking in tongues. I thought I was living the Christian life until I began seeing visions. I thought I was living the Christian life until I began hearing still small voices. Then my Christian life deepened. Then my Christian life heightened. Then my Christian life grew, not by holding fast to Christ alone, but by having these experiences. And you, believer, I'm sure you've experienced this, right? Oh, you haven't? Well, then I'll pray for you so that you will. 
so that you will enjoy all the spiritual freedom and fulfillment and growth that these experiences will bring you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the so-called Christian culture that we find ourselves in today as Americans, where people are obsessed you look around you, they are obsessed not with growing in their knowledge and devotion to Jesus Christ, but rather are obsessed in chasing after some type of spiritual experience. Higher, deeper. Simple Google search of how to hear the voice of God proves this. The books, the articles, the videos are innumerable. Some even written by well-known evangelicals. One author says, if you want to audibly hear the voice of God today, you need to ask God to speak to you, then sit alone in a quiet room for 15 to 20 minutes, and then write down whatever verses or thoughts come to you, and that's the voice of God. Another author was audacious enough to write this. Some might say the Lord speaks in sacred scriptures. There you hear the voice of the shepherd. That is good but that is not good enough. What are these people teaching? It's the exact same idea that these Colossian heretics were teaching the Colossian church. That fulfillment is not found in, freedom and fulfillment is not found in Christ alone, but in Christ plus all these experiences. It's not found in wisdom and experience, and is not found in, in Christ's word alone, it's found in Christ's word plus all these mystical experiences. By the way, just as a free note, Brothers and sisters, if Scripture is sufficient, which we all went through the Gospels, right? Sola Scriptura. If Scripture is sufficient, then additional revelation is unnecessary. And if the canon is closed, then additional revelation is impossible. So if you want to hear God speak to you audibly today, I'd encourage you to pick up your Bible and read it out loud. Nevertheless, you will have professing believers walk up to you and judge you, and tell you that you're missing out on a prize of spiritual fulfillment and freedom and growth if you don't experience these things. Paul says, don't let anyone do that. Don't let anyone disqualify you. For remember what God has done. If you remember back in Colossians 1 verse 12, Paul already wrote that God has qualified you to share with the inheritance of the saints in light. Right? He's already given you an inheritance in Christ that cannot be taken away. You've already been filled in Him who is the fullness of God. So don't let anyone come alongside you, believer, and make you question the sufficiency of Christ alone and tell you you're missing out on the prize. You have the prize, believer. His name is Jesus. He is enough. And you are complete in Him. And notice, these people were trying to tell you that you're failing to obtain the prize of true spirituality by doing what? By insisting on aestheticism, basically false humility. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, obviously, by the next point. But Paul says, don't let anyone tell you that you're not spiritual or you're not mature because you don't abstain from all the things that they abstain from. That you don't follow their outward form of false piety. Jesus condemned people like this. If you remember what he said to the Pharisees, Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. 
It's all a false show of piety. He says in Matthew 6, 2-5 that they trumpeted their giving so that everyone would notice and they prayed out loud on the street corners so everyone would hear them pray. We know from the histories that these guys would also so dramatically cover their faces whenever they saw a woman in public that they'd run into walls. And they love to be called rabbi and teacher. Matthew 23, verse 7 says, even though their counsels and their traditions directly contradicted the Word of God itself. They literally prided themselves in their humility. I'm the most humble person I know. It's because it was all fake. It was all an outward show of piety to make it look like they honored God. While in reality, their hearts were still far from Him. And because they did not have a true fear of God, they had to create a false fear of God that looked really good on the outside. Because they knew that though they praised God with their lips, they did not love Him in their hearts. It was all a show. It was all an act that they then required everybody else to follow also. I'm spiritual, that's what it looks like, and you better look like me too. Another way the heretics would try to insist that the Colossian believers were not spiritual is by insisting on the worship of angels. Now that could mean one of two things. First, the heretics might have said that you needed to approach God by means of worshiping or paying homage to angelic mediators. This concept is patently unbiblical, by the way. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. In the book of Revelation, when the Apostle John was overwhelmed with the greatness of what he's seeing, on two occasions when he fell on his face to worship and pay homage to an angel, John was told both times by those angels, do not worship me, worship God. So even the angels forbid people to pay homage to them. They tell believers, don't approach me, you're in Christ, approach God directly yourself. But these heretics were denying the soul and sufficient mediation of Jesus Christ, and we're telling those believers that you needed to have multiple mediators if your prayers and worship was going to be acceptable before God. Christ alone was not enough. That was their message. Does this heresy, does this denial of Christ's supremacy and soul sufficiency exist in our world today? Yes, absolutely. Though its form may have changed, its essence still remains. Every time someone says this, I need to confess my sins to a priest so that they might be forgiven. Every time someone says, I need to pray to the Father through Mary or one of the 10,000 saints. Every time someone says, I need to draw near to my representative before God so it's time to book a flight to the Vatican, they are denying the sole and sufficient mediation of Jesus Christ. Think about it. These false teachers probably never outwardly denied that Jesus Christ was a mediator, but they contended that God was not as mercifully and as lovingly bent towards believers as Scripture would make you think. And therefore, you really need all of these different mediators to argue your case before God. They contended that God must be approached with the assistance of other mediators as well. Do you see the danger of this? To the degree by which we move away from Christ is the degree by which we steal the glory that belongs only to Him and give it to other 
people or things, whether they be angels or men. Now, the Greek indicates that there may have been another angel, another angle to the mystic's teaching, and that is insisting that believers engage in, as the Greek literally put it, the worship of the angels. In other words, they might have been claiming that you are only spiritual if you worship like the angels worship. Using so-called, as 1 Corinthians 13, one puts it, the tongues of angels to engage in what they were calling angel-like worship. So these false teachers might have been coming among the brothers saying, well, you're not really worshiping. Why? Because you didn't use the tongues of angels in your worship. You only use the tongues of men. You need to be worshiping like the angels worship, like we worship. Therefore, your worship is not real. It's not genuine. If you want real worship, if you want deep worship, if you want transcendent worship, you've got to experience the worship of the angels. Do we hear that today? Oh, yeah. So Paul says, don't put up with that. Don't let anyone judge you and say you're missing out on the prize because you're not following their false forms of piety or you're not participating in their frenzied experiences. You have Christ who is the sole and sufficient mediator. You have Christ, who is the Son, through whom we worship the Father in spirit and in truth, which is the only type of worshipers that the Father is seeking. You have Christ, and you have all you need. Another way mystics were trying to spread doubt and discontentment among believers is by going on in detail about God's Word. Just couldn't get enough of it. Is that what it says? No, they went on and on in detail about what? Visions. In other words, this was their focus. This was their foundation. As the Greek suggests, the mystics took their stand on visions. They took their stand on ecstatic experiences. It was what drove them. It was what guided them. It is what they lived for. The foundation of their Christian life was experiences, not Christ. Now, whether you're saying you're having visions or not, I still want you to question yourself, what is the foundation of your Christian life? Are you running from church camp to church camp to keep on having experiences? Up and down, up and down, up and down. Or are you grounding your life on Christ alone? Through good times and bad. They were driven, they were guided, they were living for not the person of Christ, not the truth of his word. For a mystic, the ultimate ground of their authority is their own visions and experiences. Jesus and the Bible are good and all that, but I've seen this, right? I've heard this, I've experienced this, haven't you? No, I'm just trying my best to study the Bible, understand what's on the page, and take up my cross daily and follow Christ. I don't want to hear about that, right? Man, but I had this vision. The mystic isn't interested. They want to go on beyond what is written. And as I heard someone say once, they want to take their chance with a trance. That's a mystic. This is the telltale sign of a mystic. They are focused on experiences, not on knowing and following Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says the person who goes on in detail about their experiences and visions are what? Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. See, the level of your spirituality is not how many experiences you've had in your life. The level of your spirituality is how much you know and love Jesus.
person who goes on in detail with their experience and visions are puffed up without reason by his own sensuous. And that means fleshly mind. Isn't that interesting? They want you to think because of their subjective visions and messages and experiences that they are ultra-spiritual people. But Paul says, no, they're fleshly. They have fleshly minds. And think about it. What could be more fleshly than driving a wedge of division between believers by suggesting that there are two types of Christians? There are those who possess higher and deeper experiences of God, and then there are those that just know Christ. That is fleshly. That is unspiritual. That's demonic. People who hold these views are not being guided by the Spirit, but instead they're being guided by their own fleshly mind that God says here, God says here, is empty of reason, full of pride. They're puffed up and without reason. You see this when you contrast, by the way, these false mystics who here in Colossians were going on in great detail about their visions and experiences, and you contrast them with the Apostle Paul himself. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, But Paul had a few experiences in his life, didn't he? He had a few, could you even say, spiritual and mystical experiences in his life. But how did Paul handle them? Listen to this. Paul, being apostle, actually experienced a vision, but listen to how he handled it. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2 and following, Paul writes this, I know a man who in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heavens. 14 years ago. Sure took him a while to get it out, didn't it? It's unlike today where you have a book written next year. Verse 3, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Notice, unlike these mystical, uh, these, these mystics, Paul does not go into detail about his vision. And he explains why in verse 6. He writes, If I wished to boast, I would not be a fool, for what I would be speaking is the truth. But, listen to this, but I refrain from doing so, so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, Paul says here, even though I had this grand mystical experience as an apostle that would blow your mind, you're not even going to know about it. Because you should only think of me as highly as I am faithful in handling and obeying the word of God. My experiences matter nothing. So I will not speak of it. I won't talk about it because I want you to keep your focus on what really matters, Paul says. Not on me and my subjective experiences, but on God and his objective truths. See, when someone is insisting on false forms of piety and the worship of the angels and personal visions and mystical experiences that all imply that they are somehow on a higher spiritual plane than all the rest of the believers, Paul says that they are all signs that they are puffed up in their own minds. And he says this, not holding fast to the head, which is Christ as we saw back in chapter 1 verse 18 and chapter 2 verse 10, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So notice, the legalists spent their days chasing after laws. The mystics spent their days chasing after experiences. But where does true spiritual growth come from? Chasing after Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Holding fast to Him who is our head. 
Now, if you want mere human growth, if you want a gimmick, right? If you, if you want power and influence over people, if you want popularity, if you want fans following you, fans worshiping you, fans drawing attention to you, then by all means, cling to strange rules and replications. Cling fast to mystical experiences and visions. Cling fast to outward forms of false piety. It's what the mystics do. Some of the fastest growing movements in the world today. Why? Because Satan's behind them. But if you want holistic growth, if you want nourishing growth, if you want unifying growth, if you want a growth that can only come from God and that creates followers and worshipers of Jesus Christ and not people or experiences, then hold fast to the head and be courageously content with Him. As 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? through the knowledge of Him who called us. We as believers grow, as Second Peter 3.18 says, through the grace and knowledge of who? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, a true Christian glories in Christ, not in their experiences. He follows God's Word by the Spirit ever closer to the heart of Christ. And there, abiding in Christ's presence, the Christian experiences true freedom, true fullness, true growth. So cling to Christ, not legalism, okay? Cling to Christ, believer, not mysticism. And finally and very quickly, cling to Christ and not aestheticism. This overlaps a little bit with our first point. That's in verses 20 through 23. The best definition I could give for you this morning about aestheticism is this. Severe self-denial of ordinary activities and bodily comforts is a means of obtaining a holy life. That's aestheticism. It is the severe self-denial of ordinary activities and the severe self-denial of bodily comforts. Why? As the means of obtaining a holy life. And while you may not be familiar with that word aestheticism, you're definitely familiar with some of its ideas and practices. At the root of this belief is the idea that the body is bad and the soul is good. And one of the ways that you care for the body is to uh, care for the soul is to neglect the body and to cut off from it every possible external contaminant. The pathway to spiritual freedom and victory, this philosophy teaches, is external restrictions. If I can just cut myself off from everything that appeals, ever could possibly appeal to my flesh, then, I, then I'll experience spiritual victory in my life. Where do we see this most clearly? I'd say first, monastic living. Mon- monks and nuns, right? If I cut myself or my body off from certain places certain things, certain experiences, then I'll achieve spiritual maturity and holiness. So I'll only dress this way. I'll only sing these songs. I'll only eat these foods. I'll only walk within these four walls of my cloister. I'll only engage in these certain activities. I'll only be around these certain types of people. And sometimes I'll cut myself off even from that. And so you have Jerome, who for 30 years ate only moldy bread and muddy water. Or Bessarion, who spent 40 days and 40 nights standing awake in a thorn bush and supposedly for 40 years never laid down while he slept. Not sure how that worked. And finally, Simon the Stylite, who chained himself atop the 60-foot pillar for 39 years for so long that vermin would fall out of his clothes and filth onto the floor. Now those are some extreme examples of aestheticism, of severe self-denial, from ordinary activities and bodily comforts, why? As a means to obtaining a holy life. Now I want you to know first, that is wrong. 
those extreme examples. You ought not to treat the body that God has given you hatefully like that. Ephesians 5, 28-29 says this, Husbands should love their wives, how? As their own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Right there, that completely refutes the aesthetic lifestyle. We are to feed, we are to cherish, and we are to take care of our bodies. So the aesthetic lifestyle is just plain wrong. But second, this is Paul's point, it's just plain ineffective. It does not work. That's what Paul is going to say in verses 20 through 23. So let's read it really quickly. Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? In other words, why do you, who are united to and have all the spiritual resources found in Christ, living as if you don't have any of those resources? As if you are not united to Christ. Why are you living like that? Well, you say, well, how am I living like someone who's not connected to Christ? By submitting to regulations, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that perish as they are used according to, notice, human precepts and teachings. And you can almost hear the echo of verse 8 of this chapter, according to human precepts and teachings and not according to Christ. He says in verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity of the body. Oh, believer, I wish I could preach a whole sermon off this next phrase. Maybe I will. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you have tried to mortify sin in your body, believer, at all in your Christian life, you know that verse is true. In other words, you can cut yourself off from every single perceived external contaminant around you. It will never, never deal with the internal corruption that is lodged within you. And so, the Amish and their communities... The Muslims in their burqas. The monks and nuns in their cloisters. The rabbis in their tassels. And the suit-dressing, certain-version-carrying conservatives in their Bible belts can be some of the most carnal people you will ever meet on planet Earth. As my father-in-law says, Some of the most wicked men I've ever met wear a suit. While all these groups deny themselves things that outwardly may make themselves look like they are spiritual in the eyes of others, it actually promotes nothing more than confidence in yourself and not confidence in Christ alone. And it ignores the true pathway to holiness which is being united to and having the affections of Christ who is your head. Oh, this is what I wanted to preach on so badly. See, holiness is not preeminently the removal of something from your life. We see that with the life of Jesus. What was Jesus? Man, He was the friend of tax collectors. He was a friend of prostitutes. He was a friend of sinners. And yet, He was always holy, sinless, undefiled, always the doing the will of His Father who is in heaven. 
He had a holiness, you could put it this way, that could be in the world, but not ever become a part of it. He could be among the world and not participate in it. That's the holiness that in our union with Christ, we have. You and I have. He gives it to us. A holiness that is not preeminently the removal of something from your life, but holiness that rather is the addition of something to it. Namely, your union with Christ and having holy Christ-like affections. As the Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers wrote, nothing and no one can dispossess the heart of an old sinful affection except the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, nothing can make the heart entertain its old affection ever again unless it neglects the love of God. See, the key in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, and, I, and I, I'm saying this, okay, as a pastor, you who are struggling, perhaps, some of you, with life-dominating sins, you need to know the key in stopping the indulgence of the flesh is primarily, primarily not ultimately cutting things off. It is primarily, ultimately, clinging to Christ. And I see that in my own life. In my own struggles against sin, it is not the external restrictions I put on myself that kills my love of sin. It is the expulsive power of new affections. It is growing in my learning and love of Jesus. Practically, you can have every internet filter on your computer till it's logged down and crawls like a turtle. But if you want something, you'll find a way to get it. See, the problem is the heart. And the only thing that drives out the love of that which is wrong is the greater power of the love of that which is right. It is growing in my learning and loving of Jesus. As Alexander McLaren once wrote, there's only one thing that puts the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. By the power of Christ who by His Holy Spirit, through His Holy Word, gives us His own very holy desires. He alone can stop the indulgence of the flesh. Now that doesn't mean you don't be very careful in making sure that you do not allow the flesh to take advantages of situations. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is, victory is not found by cutting yourself off. It's by connecting yourself to Christ. So cling to Christ, not aestheticism. Not aestheticism. Be courageously content with Christ. He's the key in the center of the Christian life. He is the only one who can make us free. He's the only one that can make us full. He's the only one that can make us grow and be mature and become more into the image of God. It's Christ alone above all. So cling to Christ, not legalism. Cling to Christ, not mysticism. Cling to Christ, not aestheticism. As believers living in Colossae, We must remember that true spirituality is not being focused on worldly philosophies. It's not being focused on rules. It's not being focused on experiences. It's not being focused on denying yourself things that only man is forbidden. As we'll see in future weeks, I mean next week, chapter 3, be ready for it. True spirituality is found in focusing on Christ. Looking to Him. And finding in Him your contentment, joy, fulfillment, strength, wisdom, righteousness, indeed your very life in Him. Finding everything you need in Jesus. That is true spirituality. You say, well, how do I begin to do that? 
Come back next week. That's what the rest of this letter is all about. (laughs) But I will leave you one. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Focus on Him in His Word this week. This is the path of true spirituality. It's the best defense against doubt and discontentment. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Grow this week in your learning and your loving of Jesus so that Satan's lies cannot find a foothold within you. Be courageously content with Christ above all. This is the Word of God from Colossians 2, 18-23, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience this week until He comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the freedom that is found in Christ. Father, we recognize that all these things that we've looked at, there might be an appearance of wisdom to that. There might be the promises of freedom, the promises of fulfillment, but we recognize, Father, from Your Word, and we believe and know it in our hearts to be true, that legalism is just bondage. Chasing after experiences is just bondage. Trusting in externalism And harsh severity and restrictions is bondage. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we thank You for Christ setting us free from these futile things inherited from our forefathers. We thank You for Christ coming and indwelling us By Your Spirit, we thank You for Christ living His life out in us so that we would serve You, not in the old way of the letter, but in the new way of the Spirit, in love and in joy and in peace and fulfillment. Help us, Father, this week to cling to Christ to grow in our learning and loving of Him so that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.